Welcome to Canine Hijinks, the podcast for those who want to explore more ways to have fun with their dogs and perhaps discover the wider world of training and dog sports. It may even convert the casual pet owner into a dog sport enthusiast. Join me, Alyssa Looney. And me, Whitney Taylor, as we share our dog training journeys, as well as resources you can use to enhance your life with your canine friends. Welcome to this special episode of Canine Hijinks with our guest, dog trainer extraordinaire, Sarah Stremming. We are so glad you've chosen to join us here today. That's right. We're talking with Sarah about the four steps to behavioral wellness, which is the foundation for keeping our pet dogs healthy and enriched. Sarah Stremming, the founder of The Cognitive Canine, is a dog trainer, dog agility and obedience competitor, and dog behavior consultant. She travels the globe helping dogs and handlers understand each other better. Her credentials include a Bachelor's of Science degree in psychology from Colorado State University and more than a decade in the field of dog training and behavior. Her special interest area is problem solving for performance dogs. She's committed to education and growth in the field of dog training and attends the Innovative Training Conference Clicker Expo every year. In addition to offering seminars both domestically and across the globe, she coaches teams online and is a faculty member at Fenzie Dog Sports Academy. Sarah has a weekly podcast, which we highly recommend, titled Cog Dog Radio, which you can find on all your favorite listening platforms. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. I'm very excited. Sarah, before we start our conversation, we like to share what we've been up to with our dogs lately in terms of fun. Can you share with us what dogs are in your household and what kind of fun you've been up to with them lately? Well, of course, there are eight dogs in my household, but I'll talk to you about the three that I claim as my own. (laughs) (laughs) So Iggy is a 12 and a half year old Border Collie. She's retired from agility um, and she's deciding if she's retired from all things We're we're on a little break right now, but we do train for competitive obedience and fitness with her. Uh, Felix is a six-year-old border collie. He is doing agility and obedience as well, getting ready for his obedience debut. And, uh, we just decided that I think we're going to go to sign a sport, um, Woo! this year. So he, he's really, he and I have really kind of just recently become a team, I think in agility and, Rhea is my puppy. She's nine months old. She's an Icelandic sheepdog. And she has been starting in her um, agility foundations. And she's a super fun little dog. And of course, we do lots of lots of hiking. We did five miles today because um, the weather was nice and cool. And we're really excited about the fall where we can just hike for a long time and not worry about needing a lot of water. Hot mess. Oh uh, yeah. Know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're there were clouds that. in the sky today and I'm there like, were clouds. Oh, so nice. <laughs> yes, for sure. For sure. That's awesome. Alyssa, what have you been up to? Well, I, since I'm down to only one puppy now from my litter, have been enjoying a little more free time and puppy socialization. I took him to get his first puppuccino today, as well as visited Mud Bay. Home Goods and Cabela's, and did a tour around my office too. So he got lots of socialization today, and then he's actually hanging out with a friend of mine for the weekend. Um, so the puppy's having a lot of fun, and my adult dogs are a little happier to be getting more training on a regular basis at this point. So that's what we've been up to. And so, Whitney, that leaves you. 
Um, I was mostly on vacation last week with my kids. We did a very kid-centric vacation. Good Lord, it was exhausting. Um, so my dogs were staying with my family. My brother kept spray, and it's really interesting to hear about his adventures with her. He takes her to the dog park, which gives me, like, heart palpitations, but it's what he can do with her um and he she really likes it she's a very social dog uh and mm -hmm. he took her to a pet store and they they like went on a walk to the pet store and apparently had a conversation with the the person working at the store and he said yeah she's just such a good dog she makes you forget how much work border collies are my sister must do a lot of work with her <laughs> and so i love that he appreciates that she's like that there's a lot that goes into the fact that she can be really kind of well behaved and contained for at least a couple of days at at 17 months so that was kind of that was they they had an interesting vacation um while I was on vacation so yeah <laughs> so Sarah I've been an avid listener of your podcast ever since I went to Sinusport in 2016 and a mutual friend of ours who was driving with me told me about it and I've also attended a few of your seminars and I've found all of your advice to be incredibly beneficial not only for my journey with my Border Collie gadget but also in how I think about dog training in general. And I know that we could spend hours talking with you about a variety of topics, but we thought it would be best to discuss your foundational concept for the health and wellness of dogs. And you tend to call it the four steps of behavioral wellness. So to kick us off, can you tell us what that is and give us kind of a broad overview of it? Yeah, I was just having flashbacks to Sinusport 2016, but... Um... <laughs> Arizona... It, it was, was beautiful. It was Scottsdale. It was a particular time for our country. Yeah. Um, so oh, that's right. That's, that's <laughs> my main that memory. The election <laughs> happened. And we all try to. We, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a rough one. Um, but, you know, obviously good times as well as Sinosport always is. So the four steps are essentially this concept that I tried to streamline for people um, that comes down to the fact that the majority of the time when I'm addressing behavioral concerns in dogs, whether they're pet dogs or sport dogs, we often can trace the concern back to a welfare deficit. And so the four steps to behavioral wellness, um, as I've kind of streamlined them to be, are exercise, enrichment, nutrition, and communication. Uh, so exercise is something that we all kind of know dogs need. We all kind of know we are supposedly need, you know, yeah. exercise. But for me, I'm talking about a very specific kind of exercise that is the type of exercise that we know from human research, at least, um, does actually what we call a complete the stress cycle meaning it sort of rids the body of stress hormones. So the, the type of exercise that helps the dog kind of come back to normal and come back to kind of a baseline stress level from, from their day. So, and the type of exercise that I usually find is best for dogs is exercise where they can be free to move. So not on a leash and um, preferably also in nature, which those two usually come together, usually not having the dog um, just roam the, the city streets off leash. But um, 
in nature is important. Off-leash is important. When people cannot manage off-leash, a long line and a harness can sometimes suffice. So in general, our, our lives are not set up to provide the type of exercise that dogs really crave. And our sport dogs tend to be the type of dogs that actually need more of free body movement than a lot of dogs do. And yet we, you know, really frequently when I'm working with clients and I ask what the exercise routine is, they say, well, we go to agility class on Tuesdays and then we do go to agility practice on Thursdays. And that's the answer to the exercise question. And so we need to dive in a little bit, a little bit deeper. And then when working with more pet owning clients, it tends to be, well, you know, every night when I get off work, we go on, you know, a half a mile spin around the neighborhood on a leash. And Really, when you dig into it, most dogs thrive if they're able to actually move their bodies in nature a lot more than that. And then the next step is enrichment. And enrichment is a really interesting thing because it is, it's essentially defined as the expression of species typical behaviors. So for dogs, what species typical behaviors are are what I just described, free movement in nature. So that certainly qualifies um, as enrichment, but also sniffing and hard chewing and destruction of things a lot of times. So, uh, you know, evisceration of objects. Um, it can also be, you know, other, other species, typical behaviors can be playing with other dogs, can be you know, peeing on stuff that you're not necessarily interested in them peeing on can, you know, can be rolling in things that you're not necessarily interested in them rolling in. So Mm. allowing space for the expression of species, typical behavior is something that we do not think about when it comes to pet dogs. But if you looked at, you know, say an animal in a zoo type environment, so a captive type environment, and you looked at that environment and you went, this looks nothing like that animal's natural environment. And it's not allowing for, you You know, you might not think the problem is it's not allowing for species typical behavior, but you would look at it, you know, if they had the penguins like in a sand pit without any water, that would bother you. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, I don't think that's right for penguins. Right. Um, and so the reason that the penguin habitat at a, at a good zoo looks like a, a wild penguin habitat is enrichment is so that those animals can express species typical behaviors. And the reason that's important is welfare. The reason that's important is behavioral wellness. And so it's important for dogs as well to be able to express those species typical behaviors. And a lot of them don't fit well into our lives again. And so we have to intentionally make room for them with activities. Um, Nutrition is one that, you know, I'm not a vet and I'm not a nutritionist. So I don't give people specific advice here. But what I often comment on is whether or not the dog looks in good health. Like, do they have good hair coat? Are they, are they itchy? Are, do they have inflamed ears or feet? You know, things like that need to be discussed um, with the veterinarian. We need to be making sure that the dog is eating a diet that actually works for him. And surely when it comes to dog food, I mean, just if you want to get in a real fight, forget politics, talk about <laughs> dog food on the internet. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, it is serious. So 
people take it really seriously. So for me, I'm interested in looking at the dog and saying, does this dog appear to be in physical health? And also is his GI health normal? A lot of times with my behavior cases, the dog's you are breaking with diarrhea like once a week, twice a week. I mean, these are things that are not actually normal and shouldn't just be kind of treated as a symptom, like throwing pills at it every single time it happens, but should rather be addressed at a nutrition level. So often, and again, I go back to zoos where captive animals are being kept. And if it's a really good zoo, they've got a nutritionist on staff that is designing a species appropriate diet for every single animal in that zoo. And then we've got dogs who, you know, we might just be feeding whatever we've always fed and it might not be working for this particular dog. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a friend who uh, worked with the big cats at a a major zoo. And I mean, if she wanted to use something as a treat for training, because they trained all these husbandry behaviors, I mean, it had to pass through all of the nutritionists on staff to get approval for her to use whatever it was because they took it that seriously that the animals were never intaking something that was going to throw off their um their health and then the last one communication communication is a behavioral need for every single one of us if we are living with somebody that we cannot communicate with that spells you know poor behavioral health, poor mental health, right? It is, it leads us to, um, it leads us to bad relationships. It leads us to all, all kinds of detriments, um, in our lives and dogs, I believe truly are seeking to understand us all the time. Um, I, I don't know that for sure, of course, but my observation and my belief is that they can take a lot better than they can take confusion. So mm-hmm. they really, I, I observe that confusion appears to be a really detrimental thing to behavioral wellness. And so setting up good, solid communication systems um, with pet owners, whether they're dog sport people or pet people, is such an important thing to do so that you're both not frustrated. Neither of you are confused. You can always be, you know, if I can say to the dog and now we're going into this room and now we're going outside and now you're going in a crate or, you know, those, like if I can actually communicate those things without the dog getting confused, needing to be corrected, needing to be told you went to the wrong place, you know, all of the, all of that makes our lives so much easier with them. So, so those are the four steps. It's exercise, enrichment, nutrition, and communication. So I think that's amazing. And I'm like, oh, I I had a thought. Oh, I had a thought. So I'm thinking now that I've had a million (laughs) thoughts um, (laughs) that it would be kind of interesting. Should we dive into each step a little more and kind of, I think, discuss where maybe we've seen that have an effect on our own dogs, friends, dogs, family dogs, all of that kind of stuff um, or some things that piqued our interest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so exercise, my biggest thought was like, I don't think I could have a border collie without, well, she has 15 acres, right? Cause I have five and then my two neighbors each have five and she's welcome on both of those five acres. So she has 15 total. How could I have a border collie without her? Like she, she just roams, she roams. And I've gotten to the point where at first I was really worried about it because I felt like 
we weren't going to build a relationship. If she had this like roaming free time and she got all of these reinforcers from her roaming time. And now I just think of it as good for her mental health. I'm like, well, you haven't gone. Go, go do your thing because she rolls in things. She digs, she chases, mm -hmm. like she really is doing a lot of enriching behavior and like, yes, I could manufacture a lot of that, you know, for her type of a thing, but why she's just out there being a dog, doing dog things. And, um, so I can't imagine I, I don't, cause I, I don't have places that I go and hike and hike <laughs> with dogs and like, so it's such a, privilege thing to be able to say like I just own land so I don't have to walk my dog um but it was a lifestyle choice <laughs> well it was but you're bringing up a good point that when your border collie is given free choice that's the life she lives and I think that that would be true for a lot of dogs not just border collies but border collies in particular do need to move their body quite a bit um She's also engaging in all these species and breed typical behaviors as she's doing so. So that's enrichment, not only exercise. And what happens when you don't have 15 acres is that you have to manufacture right. similar things to produce behavioral wellness, um, which is really tough. I mean, the majority of my private clientele has been border collies for the last I, eight or nine years. And this is usually the issue. People don't have 15 acres. People mm -hmm. live in suburbia. They live in suburbia with their dog or in the city with their dog. Um, they have this dog. They love this dog. And their dog has all these behavioral concerns. And if their dog had 15 acres, they wouldn't have any of these behavioral yeah. concerns, but they don't. And so we have to, we have to bridge that gap for people and provide, you know, ways that they can help manufacture those things that you just described and it's certainly it's a tall order. It's it's not a small yeah. thing for sure. Yeah, I think it. I think the exercise one is interesting to look at when because I've had several different breeds in my household. So Tug was a Visla. When we went outside, we were lucky enough to have property. Also, he he wanted to wander and sniff. He had no interest in playing with the dogs, playing with me, nothing. That was what he wanted to do. Um, Tilly wants to hunt mice. Um, thank God we don't have rats. So she hunts mice. She's a rat terrier. Um, Jet is my first border collie. And he is the one who quite often, and especially if he hasn't had enough exercise, we will go outside and he will sprint at least one lap around the entire back five acre field. And then he can forage and hunt for critters and eat blackberries or whatever, but he has to have that movement before he's capable of doing that. And Lincoln, he likes to hunt and is quite a successful hunter, but if he could snack or roll and poop or something, <laughs> he would rather do that. Yeah. Was Tug, did you have Tug as a puppy? When you had Tug as a young dog, did you have property? No. So I got him at six months old and he was I had no idea what I was getting into. He's a Vizsla, right? Yeah. Vizsla is so anxious. When they're young in particular, need to move their bodies a yes. ton, a lot. So, I, so oddly enough, I had, before I got tugged, I actually had two of his litter mates that went down to my brother's house in Texas and have property. 
But I had them just for about a month between getting them from the breeder and bringing them down to Texas. And one of those puppies, I could not get enough exercise into that puppy. And he drove me up the wall. He would whine all night. He could not settle. I started putting him, I was not a dog nerd at the time, so I had no idea what I was doing. But I had a treadmill, so I started putting him on the treadmill, which in in dog, in dog nerd land is normal. But in normal person land, it wasn't. So, you know, people thought that was hilarious. But... It was the only thing I could think of because I could tell that dog needed so much more than I could give him to settle. It was insane. I've never had a puppy like that again. I hope I never do. But I also have land, so maybe maybe I do have dogs like that, and I just don't know it. <laughs> the interesting thing, though, is that ties, to me, directly into enrichment. So you're trying to get this puppy all this exercise. You've got the treadmill thing going, so it's not doing sort of that in-nature body movement Enough. stuff. And so if you're talking to Sarah, then Sarah is going to ask you, what are you doing for enrichment? Yeah, isn't that kind of, is is that how the consultations go, Sarah? Well, <laughs> well it can be, it can be, um, you know, here's, I always ask, like, what's the exercise routine? Right. What's, what's good? What's normal? What's your normal for the dog? And, um, I will say the tides are kind of changing. It used to be that people were like, what do you mean I should take the dog on an off-leash walk mm. ever? And uh, more and more and more people, if especially if they contact me, they already know that I'm into that. They already right. know that I'm going to recommend it. So they probably already tried it. Tried so it. <laughs> they're, they're trying to do it. But for instance, for your young Vigla, young sporting dogs in general do have very high exercise needs. And then they also like to do things like use their nose to find stuff. Mm -hmm. And I would be so inclined as to, you know, when we say species typical, we can make a long list of what's typical for the DOG, the dog as a species. And then though, we have, they're actually the most diverse species on planet earth because of the breeds that we've created. And so then in addition to that, we have breeds breed specific or breed typical behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and I am really interested in providing dogs with breed typical outlets whenever possible. So if you have a young bird dog, I'm telling you to go to Cabela's and get a bird wing and mm. teach the dog to find it. Um, put it on the end of a flirt pole if you've got a pointer and have them follow it and point it. Um, you know, those little additions to their life do make a difference to their behavior overall. What tends to, you know, be hard for people is that they'll try to make these tiny changes. If there's still this huge welfare deficit overall, your tiny changes are not going to look like they're doing anything. So it takes a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly like just exercise, especially just treadmill exercise, because the treadmill isn't a dog's natural form of exercise. Right. right. Um, and certainly for dogs who just need to move their legs an absurd amount, which can be young sporting dogs, can be young border collies too. I mean, one of our border collies, we do like um, Whitney, you were saying that, or Alyssa, you were saying that Jet will just sprint. Mm -hmm. Watson will do that. So our, uh, my partner's young border collie, like we'll go out for a hike and he'll do, we call him marathons. He'll like literally <laughs> run like a mile ahead and then come back and like, yeah. then like keep doing it. Um, 
that dog would benefit from being on the treadmill for 20 minutes before we take him on a hike. Right. Like get some of yeah. your leg movement done and now let's go decompress on the hike. Right. Um, it makes me think yeah. of um, like a Dalmatian, right? So they're a carriage dog. Their job was mm-hmm. to like run next to a carriage. They just, they just want to go. They just got to move. And move. Yeah. That's kind of all. They... And then at a much faster pace than you can walk next right, to them. Because it was a horse drawn carriage. It was a horse drawn carriage that yeah. they were keeping up with. And so um, that's a Dalmatian can trot for days. Yeah. Because that's literally what they were doing. Exactly. Um, and so great dog for a jogger. Yep. Mm-hmm. Not as great of a dog for, you know, a family with three small children that doesn't get any of their own personal time. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Well, and interestingly enough, like a, a dog that can tend to struggle in agility. I've, I've really not seen anyone mm-hmm. be successful with a Dalmatian. Yeah. It's just not sort of in their nature and Dalmatians are super interesting breed from like a breed perspective. Um, but also kind of unique in what they were originally bred for. So I just, they're super fascinating though. Like I never want one, but I'm fascinated by them. As, as they're a, definitely on, as I mean, they're on my list of like, I think they are, I'm extremely attracted to them. I think yeah, they're, they're very, very good looking. Mm-hmm. I actually had a Dalmatian border collie cross um, when I was a kid, when I was a yeah, he was insane. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Who's shocked? Everybody raised their hand. No, nobody. Nobody. Everybody, shocked. right. <laughs> nobody shocked. Um, and so it's a breed I'm really attracted to. And I think, you know, it's like I said, they can trot for days, fitting into fitting their body into AKC courses at a run. Not what they were designed for. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Certainly, you know, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean go try. That doesn't mean go play with your Dalmatian, right? It is, it is interesting when you see it, when we're talking about qualities in an agility dog, wanting to move your body a lot is certainly not the only one. Right. 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 Yes. Well, and I think, I mean, as a kid, I was just obsessed with all of these things that dogs were originally bred for. And so now being kind of in the dog sport community and it just gives me a whole nother perspective on kind of the enrichment piece of things and where it can go right so that that's kind of the other thing that stands out to me at the I so on our vacation with the kids we went to the Seattle Aquarium and in the otter tank and otters require a lot of enrichment they're very very busy animals they had a deconstructed plastic playhouse and just like the one side of the house floating in the water so that they could like go up through the window and sit on the thing. And so this sort of really odd looking thing, but I don't know, fairly well appropriated, like a piece of debris or something like that. Mm -hmm. So really Mm -hmm. interesting to see all the things that they do in zoos that I, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily thought about. And I think is, is an interesting perspective on, dogs to go oh like manufacturing enrichment is something we should be doing for our dogs and that um I think it can be hard for people to think of their dog kind of like a zoo animal but they they are in so many ways and that we owe it to them to do at least as much as they're doing in a zoo to kind of come up with enrichment activities for them 
Because they are actually captive animals. Right. I mean, they are. And so um, providing them, looking at their environment, what I've said to people before is, okay, think of the last time you were in a zoo and think of an enclosure and now think that your dog lives in that enclosure. And now think, what does that enclosure need to have for you to think that's okay? Yep. Mm. Boy, that's a great visual. Right. And now we're talking. And now we're talking about what changes need to be made. Um, my house is full of snuffle mats and bones and toys. And I mean, it's just, it's a dog wonderland. It's no one would, no one would think it was clean, but it's full, <laughs> it's full of dog stuff everywhere. And um, there's just kind of always things for dogs to do. And, you know, talking about the, the play castle or whatever it was that the otters were playing with. Like, that's not that different from me unpacking the chewy box and then repacking it with the paper and just putting it on the floor and saying, you know, have at it. You can climb in this box. You could rip the paper out of it. You can, you know, do whatever you want with it. Or, you know, people buy their dogs stuffy toys and then, take them away if the dog starts to eviscerate the stuffy toy. But like, that is the point actually. Yes. Yep, right. Is to basically give them a carcass they can shred. I mean, that's, that's the point of the stuffy yep. toy. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I have yeah, so I, many. Yeah. <laughs> well, and my dogs even like it when I pick up all the toys and stick them in a bin and then they'll go to the bin and start pulling toys out. Oh, they and love that. So, they yeah, love they taking do. stuff out of the bin. Uh-huh. And, um, I've had, you know, now my Facebook feed is mostly full of dog people. And so the few that aren't are just like family and friends and they just think I'm weird. But prior to having all of the dog people as friends, I started dabbling with things like here, shred the junk mail. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the people would be like, how would you, why would you ever let your dog practice that behavior? Right. But the reality was that they were more pleasant to live with when I would let them do that stuff and the paper wasn't going to hurt them. And so with my back to my Vizsla, who of course was a super anxious dog, when I'd play, do things like that stuff, he could actually de-stuff or just a food scatter where I'd throw kibble all over the living room or in the grass in the backyard. Or, um, I did a lot with Tug and Daisy. I would have them stay on their beds and then go hide a toy somewhere and they'd go find it. And they loved that game. And it took very little effort from me, but especially when the weather was awful, it was a great way to get them moving and sniffing and searching for something. And then they were fine to live with because I didn't have property at the time. And those kinds of things made just a huge difference in our ability to like each other all the time. (laughs) So Sarah, are there like two or three things that for general people listening, you think are kind of always a good option, sort of regardless of breed to add? You mentioned a snuffle mat. I'm guessing most people don't know what that is. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So a snuffle mat is essentially like a high, almost like a high pile carpet sort of rug. You can get them made of fleece. You can get them made of a lot of materials and you put kibble or other small bits of food down in it. So the dog has to snuffle through and find them. Um, Snuffle mat is a a great thing for everybody to have in their house. They're all over Etsy um, Mm -hmm. and other, you know, other 
big, you know, corporate websites other than Etsy. I mean, they're they're kind of everywhere now, which is cool. They're kind of, they've become kind of mainstream. A snuffleboard is an easy thing because you can just drop some kibble in it like any time. Like I have a couple in my office and my dogs have learned that when my partner's dogs start barking about something, they go to snuffle mats and I go and I will load snuffle mats whenever that's happening so that I don't have barking happening. You could do that with any number of triggers. You could teach the dog that the mailman equals snuffle mat has kibble in it. I mean, it can be just a brilliant thing that's out. I also am a huge fan of just putting snuffle mats in crates. So if you ever, you know, if you use crates for management, any time of your day, you can always just load the snuffle mat with kibble every time the dog was in a crate. So snuffle mats a really good one. I also am a huge fan of stuffing um, hard rubber type of stuffables. So Kong is one brand, but the Westpaw topple is my favorite. Um, and you can fill that with any, any kind of wet food that you use. So like you can make a mash or you could just use canned dog food, or you can even use soaked kibble that you put in. And then I put it in the freezer and then it takes the dogs longer to eat because it's frozen. Yep. We have a good video about that, that we can link, um, in the show notes for this episode. For sure. Because it's, for me, if the dog gets a, gets breakfast that way, I have a morning because then yeah. they can be chewing their, they're, they're expressing a species, um, typical behavior of hard chewing to obtain calories. So done check enrichment happening. Um, but also they're eating a meal and I didn't waste it, but just putting it in a bowl and giving it to them. So that's a really easy thing to do. And it's a good way to clean out your fridge. So if you yeah. really how I make it half the time, I like get a big bowl <laughs> Just put whatever's in there that's dog safe, that's leftover, that's in there that yep. needs to get tossed, throw it in. If I yep. have like yep. a half open bag, like an open half full bag of frozen vegetables of any kind, yep. dump it in, like get rid of it. I mean, it's whatever I've got, it goes in. Really easy way to, yeah, get, kill two birds, one stone. Yep. Just get yep. empty your fridge, also feed the dog. Yep. And then I also, like you like you guys mentioned, um, trash, junk mail. Like, yep. junk mail was made for dog enrichment. That's why junk mail still happens. Like, that's the, <laughs> that's the only reason it, that's the only good it serves in the world is for the dog to shred it. So I'm really big on junk mail. And if your dog is like, what is this? I'm not going to do this. Some dogs are not shredders, but a lot of them have just been discouraged for a long time from shredding. Mm -hmm. And so what you might do is just half open an envelope and stuff a couple kibbles inside Uh, and give it to them. And that'll kind of encourage them to do the shredding and, and learn how to do the shredding. So letting them have some shredding snuffle mats, of course, I love. And of course, Kongs and topples and those kind of frozen. And if your dog won't eat it frozen, Things do not qualify as enrichment if the dog isn't actually doing them. So if your dog won't eat it, you want to do um, not frozen, partial frozen. There's a lot of people talk about doing layers, like put something really tasty on top and then also really something really tasty in the bottom so that they're encouraged to eat all the way through and get to the bottom. Um, There are a lot of ways around that if the dog is like, I'm not sure if this is worth my time. 
You can also, you know, we have another video we can relink to um, to try to figure out what types of treats and foods your dog prefers. Mm -hmm. um, I was even noticing with my puppy the other day, I had tossed some kibble on the floor and then I tossed some of these little apple treat things on the floor and he would sniff around, he'd get to the kibble and skip it and go to the next <laughs> treat and eat that. And so I was like, well, that's a clear preference if I've ever seen one. So you can watch, you can watch and see, you know, what do they prefer to help get you started? And some dogs are food hands. Lincoln will eat anything. doesn't matter. So, so let's talk. So we've talked a lot about enrichment and we will put some links in the show notes and you can also go to our website because we've got quite a few links to things like Kongs um, and some other enrichment items, but um, nutrition, what, what kind of deficits do you see behaviorally if they don't have good nutrition? So behaviorally speaking, and again, my first clues to nutritional deficits are things that um, any really good veterinarian would also see, which is the skin is itchy or in bad condition. The coat is in bad condition. Maybe the ears are itchy um, or the dog doesn't have good GI health. But behaviorally, I have seen dogs with severe anxiety that got a lot better when the food was handled, when the food was better. So we often link GI concerns with anxiety. It tends to kind of be a cyclical chicken or the egg sort of situation. Do you have a nervous tummy? Like you're nervous and therefore the GI gets upset or is the GI upset and therefore you're nervous? We don't actually know, but what we do know is those, because you just don't feel good. And what we do know is those things are linked for sure. And so handling, um, usually handling one makes the other better, whether you address the anxiety from maybe a pharmaceutical standpoint, or you address the gut health from a different standpoint, they, they affect each other. So I'm a big fan of approaching both as, as best as we can with the best professionals on board. Um, I have definitely seen dogs just it's almost like their worldview shifts. Like when they wake up and they're finally well-fed and they finally feel better, it's like, okay, now I can cope with the stressors of today. And if you think about it, you know, as a person, life is hard and life is stressful and you face a lot of different stressors on any given day. If you also feel sick on top of it, your reactions and your, your behavior are going to be more extreme. And over time, things like depression and anxiety that are chronic can really take hold. And I think that um, too many dogs are just not doing well enough on the dog food that has been, that is just kind of status quo and is therefore given to them and it is affecting their behavior overall. I also, you know, if the dog is eating something that I've just kind of anecdotally observed is that if you've got a young dog that's kind of frenetic and hyper and then you turn around and they're eating something that's full of additives and dyes and maybe even sugar that's that's not a question mark to me like that's well right. let's not feed the kid that can't sit still the sugar laden cereal every meal right but right. even though he wants it right let's not give him mountain dew because he already can't sit still right yep. so mm -hmm. And I do, you know, if you actually 
one thing that I would encourage everybody to do is to just actually read some ingredients sometimes. Like we, yeah. we don't, we just look at a package and buy the thing, right? If you actually flip it over and read the ingredients, you'd be amazed how much sugar yeah. is in a lot of commercial pet um, foods and treats in particular. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the other thing that to me, like when I hear people start talking about nutrition, I'm like, they're going to try and get me to feed raw. Everybody, they're going to try and get me to feed raw. And it just it won't fit into my lifestyle. It is not, um, I, if I really, really had to, of course I would make it happen. But I think it's important for people to know that there is a huge variety of kibble available on the market. So, um, Dexter, when he was young and we started doing agility, he was getting these weird welts on his belly mm. and he, um, he has a lot of piebald, right? Springer type markings. And so I wasn't super surprised given what I knew that he might have kind of sensitive skin. And I worked for the Banfield hospital corporate office at the time. And I ran something called Academy and they brought every single veterinarian that they hired in for a week's worth of training and Kool-Aid drinking. Right. But mm -hmm. it meant that I had access to kind of all these random veterinarians, a lot of them just out of school. And it was something that I had mentioned in conversation. And somebody said, well, you should try putting him on the Royal Canin skin support diet. Because I had done at this point, I think, three rounds of antibiotics. So he'd get these welts. Mm -hmm. And then I would take him to the vet and they would put him on antibiotics and it would go away. But then they were just coming back. And so I didn't, I had no idea what was like irritating his skin. So it was suggested to me I put him on a skin support diet. I did. It's stupid expensive. It's been nine years, he has never, ever had a reoccurrence of those welts, which I just think is bizarre. Yeah. And so it's not a diet that every dog needs, but there's, there's just a huge variety of diets out there. So like consult with your veterinarian and, you know, figure out something that works, but to, well, I and, think a, that's important. and a nutritionist, right. right. If, if your veterinarian is out of options or is not sure, you know, we expect veterinarians to wear every single hat under the sun and it's not fair a lot of the time. Um, I am a huge proponent of raw and fresh food diets. I am also a huge proponent of if it's not broken, don't fix it. Um, mm -hmm. And so in our house, it's actually really funny. So on the porch, when I got home today, we had our box of um, frozen pre-made raw food and next to it is a box from Purina because <laughs> there are eight dogs in this house and there are a lot of different dietary needs. So we've got a dog that's on prescription renal support diet. We've got a couple of dogs that are on um, prescription joint support diet for specific reasons. We've got dogs that are on raw. We've got dogs that are on half raw, half, half kibble. We, it is all about what is this dog thriving on right. that's in mm -hmm. front of me. Right. And certainly what the person is able to do, both from a cost and a time standpoint, matters. Yep. Because anything I ask you to do, if it's not sustainable for you as a person, it's not a good, it's not good advice then. Right. Right. So you're not going to stick to it anyway. Right. And so, um, you know, my dog, Iggy, has been eating raw since she was a year old. She's 12 and a half. 
she's done really well on it this whole time. And she is, you know, hopefully not going to need anything else. And we've got, you know, one of our young dogs, like he just needs so much caloric freaking intake that there's no way that anybody can afford to feed him raw. (laughs) He eats a lot of kibble and a lot of raw food and he still looks like a whippet off the track. So, I mean, (laughs) you know, that's sometimes the reality. Yeah. Weight, weight, I think it's such a big thing. I have... not as easy. So he doesn't need as much food. They need more food and, or he needs a little lower calorie food mm-hmm. and they need a higher calorie food. My Vizla was really hard to put weight onto mm-hmm. really hard. And so he always looked really skinny. And when I went to raw briefly, I couldn't keep weight on him. But uh, you know, like you said, you couldn't, because it's really it. efficient. It's really yeah. nutrient dense. You eat, you know, a little bit of it and it doesn't, it doesn't pack anything on. And yeah. it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's very much for me, it's all about what's going on with this dog and what can we figure out that works best for this dog. Yep. Yeah. And also well, the person that's attached matters. Yeah. And something that um, I hadn't realized until, I don't know when, but in any case, something that might be interesting and a little bit of an incentive to look at nutrition is that when you have good nutrition on your dog, their poop is smaller. Yes. They poop a lot less. Yeah. A lot less. Yeah. Huge motor. Your dog is pooping four times a day. You got to look normal. at the food. You yeah. got to look at what's not going not on with normal. the food. Nobody I needs mean, to be picking uh, up that much. No. no. <laughs> well, and so it's really interesting. I went to a nutrition seminar, web, webinar thing through Fenzy Dog Sports, and um, I was fascinated. So to Sarah's earlier point, depending on the veterinary school, you may get one or two classes on nutrition. So there, I would recommend, as you say, for like, find a board certified nutritionist, you know, especially now that it's easier to consult with folks online, that you're going to get a really huge difference in education. That was something that was really interesting working in the veterinary industry, knowing that most people were looking for a nutrition recommendation from their veterinarian, but their schooling really doesn't support it by and large. So that's something to keep in mind. But so in the webinar, the my hugest takeaway was that if you look at the dog food package and look at the recommended feeding amounts for whatever reason, they've gotten very off often so that mm-hmm. like it'll recommend mm-hmm. that you feed a 50 pound dog three plus cups of food a day. Which, like, if you fed the recommended package amount, the dog would be obese. And so Mm -hmm. you don't want to do that. But her point was, however, the micronutrients that a dog needs are formulated for them to be eating. To be eating that much. That recommended amount. So if Mm -hmm. you are holding back, you are underfeeding the micronutrients that the dog needs. And I was like, oh, my God years my dogs have been doing this for years I find the amount that works and if you it's really interesting when you start looking at dog food packages there's a huge range in the number of calories in one cup of food so there's like all these things to just look at and think about and so I tried to find a like a lower calorie food something that I could feed to the specifications and um 
Oh my God, the the poop. I was like, what happened to your your poop? I won't be buying that food again. So like they liked it just fine. It was good calorie wise, but then I'm like, it's it's fillers. Like it's low calorie because it's actually loaded with right. It, it can be some loaded with fillers so, if it's low calorie. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a tricky world that can be feel really daunting for a normal person to try to navigate. So I, that's why I recommend, you know, there's actually a lot of good resources. Um, and I can even throw you guys a couple of links that you can put up that I trust that I can send people to because it's not my job to tell them what to feed, but it is my job to say, Hey, I think whatever you're feeding is not working Mm -hmm. because of these reasons. And so here's who I think you should reach out to. You always start with your GP who knows your vet, your dog best. And then, and then we can go from there because in the same, you know, nutrition is the same with behavior when it comes to veterinary education, it's just a gaping black hole. And the reason it is, is because they're training these people to be a surgeon and a dentist and a pediatrician. I mean, they're training these people to be everything in four years. So well, right. And don't forget it, the cows and the pigs and the et cetera, as we have talked about. Oh, yeah. You also episodes. need to know how to treat every single animal under yeah. the sun. I mean, it is ridiculous actually. And so that they come out good doctors that can take care of your dog is actually incredible. And so you, you know, I feel like give them the benefit of the doubt and be like, Hey, do you have somebody that you use for this? And if you don't, what do you think of this person? And can we do a three-way conversation Mm -hmm. so that everybody's in the loop here and we figure out what best to feed this dog um, going forward? Well, and so I do want to follow back on the, because it sounds a little bit daunting getting into all the weeds of this, that again, if it's not broke, don't fix it. it. If, If your dog is healthy and not having major issues, don't worry about what you're feeding your dog. It's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Um, so what's the fourth what, communication? We haven't talked yet about communication, but when I hear, make sure you can communicate with your dog. Um, I know what you mean, but I also have these like visions of the people who, and I actually converse with my dogs too, but even though they can't understand me, but it's like, Hey gadget, we're going to go downstairs now. Will you come with me, please? <laughs> And I don't think that's what you mean. It's not. Um, And I talk to my dogs all day too. I mean, I'm constantly talking to them, but I think giving some, giving people some concrete things that they can do to improve communication between them and their dogs is, is more what my, my interest is. Uh, And I have two kind of general recommendations that I give everybody. And the first one is from Kathy Sedeo. She has a book called Plenty in Life is Free, which is a really fantastic um, just examination of the way that we live with our dogs. And it's called SMART times 50. And it stands for, it's an acronym, it stands for See, Mark, and Reward Training. And the times 50 means that your goal is 50 times a day. So what that looks like is you see the dog doing something right or doing something that you like. So that's the C part. You mark it, meaning you communicate to the dog that you liked what you just saw. And that can look like praise. That can look like maybe the word yes. That could look like a click if you're using a clicker. But it could also, if you live, you're a crazy person that lives with eight dogs like me, it could look like just saying that dog's name specifically, just out of context. Just I, I said the name, nothing else was happening, but I said your name. Um, 
and reward means, and then you deliver a small piece of food or give some other kind of reinforcer. And then obviously training. And then the 50 times a day part is that you can just have stashes of food all over your house. I encourage people to um, just have little cookie jars everywhere that are high up that the dog can't access, that they can catch the dog doing something right, mark the dog for that, go to the cookie jar, get one piece of kibble out and give it to them. Um, you can make it a game with your family. You can have 50 kibbles in a bowl that are that's sitting somewhere in the house. And we want to make sure that bowl is empty by the end of the day. So we all caught the dog doing something right today. And now the bowl is empty. Um, the reason it's times 50 is the same reason that if you go to a PT and they tell you to do 20 reps of something, it's because they're hoping you do five. So <laughs> it is a high bar so that you do it so that you're thinking about it enough so that you're doing it as much as kind of you can when you implement smart times 50 and you just start telling the dog things that are right you do a couple of things you achieve a couple of goals one is that you increase those right behaviors that you like and some examples of right behaviors might be flopping down on a dog bed might be looking outside without barking might be, you know, waiting on one side of a door before I release you might, you know, might be any number of things. And it makes you a more keen observer of your dog's behavior, which is what makes you a better dog trainer and a better kind of um, conductor of the dog's world and the dog's life. But the other thing that it achieves is it increases the presence of positive reinforcement in the dog's world. And when we have an environment that is rich with positive reinforcement, we have fewer behavioral concerns and we certainly have fewer um, welfare deficits. For me, the thing that I think is amazing about that is that it gets you away from this conundrum of you can't train the absence of behavior. So, so often what people want to do is they want their dog to stop doing all of these things and they don't have a real good gauge on, well, what is it I want my dog to do? What is the behavior that I want? And so if you are catching them doing the thing that you want, which sort of feels like an absence of behavior because they're maybe not doing anything, it's such a, it's such a good way to kind of get around that issue and then at the same time you've got a dog wandering around going what can I do what what will get me this reward and so I mean then they're more mentally active too in a way right well they can be and basically it just is acknowledging the fact that we are socialized to notice problems right not positives right right Mm. we much you know it is much easier for us to notice that somebody left their coffee mug on the table than it is for us to notice that somebody put their coffee mug in the dishwasher, right? Like it's just, it's easier for us to notice a problem than it is for us to notice um, something that we like and want to reinforce. And so if you have a goal of noticing 50 things a day that are reinforceable, your perspective changes and you start to see things that are reinforceable. And it completely changes the way you see your dog and it can, it changes the way the dog sees you because rather than you being this um, tyrant that's always telling them they're doing the wrong thing, 
you are now the deliverer of rewards throughout the day, telling them that they're doing the right thing. So smart times 50, if I could like wave a wand and change one thing about how everybody interacts with their dogs during the day, it would be to implement smart times 50. And then, um, and that's Kathy Sadeo's concept. And then um, my concept that I call I plus R, which stands for instruct and reinforce. And I plus R, the goal is to replace correction in your life. So the goal is to, instead of telling the dog, stop doing that, because smart times 50 is well and good, but if half the time your dog is still doing stuff that you don't want them to do, mm-hmm. you're left with this hole of, you know, but I can't reinforce that. And I can't, and, and if I just wait for that to stop and then reinforce, am I building a chain right. of, of those behaviors and, and that sort of thing. And so for me, I plus R is just acknowledging that we're all human and we all want to say no. And we all want to say, Hey, you know, buddy, knock it off. It doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world, but it's not that effective either. Right. And so Mm -hmm. it just kind of puts a rift in your relationship. It just kind of stops you from being, um, the, the conductor of the rewards rather. And it makes you this, this tyrant that's always telling you somebody that they're wrong. And so instead instruct and reinforce I plus R is the act of saying, please do this instead. And then reinforcing the dog for doing it. Mm -hmm. So let's say, you know, if in smart times 50, one of my goals is to catch the dog looking out the front window and not barking, then all the times the dog is barking, I could implement I plus R. So the dog goes to the window to start to bark. And I say, Hey, um, go to your mat instead, or go to your kennel or follow me into this room. And then I could pay the dog for doing that. I can give the dog a cookie for doing that. And again, it's a perspective change. It shifts you into being the educator rather than just the corrector. So I'm telling you what I need from you and I'm paying you for doing those things rather, you know, it's the difference between like, you could ask your spouse to take out the trash and then say, thank you. Or you could be pissed that they never take out the trash. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So there, there are two ways to go (laughs) through this. Right. And so it's, you know, in good communication, it is all about asking for what you need and then appreciating it when you get it. And it's the same with dogs. So just say like, they don't know that barking is obnoxious. Can I just say for once and for all, like dogs don't understand that barking is annoying to human beings. They don't know. <laughs> so that. That's such a good point though. And I, I really never thought about that, but duh. <laughs> they don't know. They have no concept that barking is irritating to us. Right. Why should and they? How they so communicate. why would they? Right. Right. Yep. And so it's so important for us to then just intervene and ask them to do something else and then reinforce rather than having this, why don't you understand that that's hurting my ears? Yeah. You know, Rhea doesn't know that my Apple watch tells me when she's putting me in an unsafe noise environment. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. So when Tatum was a baby, we, I would, I think of this as like redirection still like same concept. And so if he like grabbed something that we didn't want him to have, which he's a baby, like all the time, we would just redirect here, play with this instead, stick this in your mouth instead. Yes. And we apparently the same thing. Right. So totally the same thing. And I was I have I said on this podcast, 
I'm going to write a book like how to treat your baby like a dog, like dog training tips for parents, because <laughs> so many of the things about like being consistent and all of that kind of stuff and how you can build communication with them earlier all totally apply. But so the problem was when he got more mobile and it, like could get himself into actual dangerous situations and was, you know, maybe further away from us, we would say no and he would just laugh. He had no idea what no meant because we never told him no. So he just thought it was funny that we were angry because he he didn't understand what what being corrected was because it hadn't happened to him. So it was really fascinating to realize that like he didn't know what no meant and that for his own safety, we had to teach him how to be corrected then at that point and that like you should be scared, you should stop what you're doing immediately. So it was an interesting balance that we ended up having to strike because you know when things are a safety concern you, you just really need to arrest the behavior immediately so. right which is a whole other podcast oh, because that is different. a conversation that i and that is a communication system i think needs to be built in with dogs too but it's a lot more complicated than right. we have time for yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much there's so much like i think sarah we could talk for weeks and months and i mean well, that's there, why she has a podcast. Why could, exactly. Podcast. I could talk forever. Yeah. So that's why my podcast. Just, you know, <laughs> subscribe to Sarah's podcast. There's so much good stuff on there. Uh, because the reality is, what did you tell me recently, Sarah? Dogs are complex beings. They are. They're not simple. They have feelings. They have emotions. You know. They have wants and desires. They have. Yeah. I mean, they're as complicated as people are. They just don't have the same language level. And so we forget that they are as complicated as we are. Well, and, and as you said earlier, I I believe that Sarah research bears your observation out. Dogs are always looking Mm -hmm. to understand us. So, and they understand us in very sophisticated ways. So there are, they're one of the few animals that you can like point and they will look at what you're pointing at. Um, they, they do that better than great apes. Yes, that was what I was going to say, but I thought I was wrong. So yes, they, they do it better <laughs> than animals with much larger brains, right? The other thing that if you put a piece of meat under a grate or whatever and a dog can't get to it, like they'll try for, you know, 30 seconds, 10 seconds, whatever it is. And then they'll look at the person and be like, dude, help me out. What's going on here? If you do that with a wolf, they never look never like yeah. they, they they don't expect a human to solve a problem for them the way that a dog does and that rings true when the wolves are raised by people so that i think that's also an interesting thing is that when you do studies on dogs and wolves that are raised exactly the same these things still ring true so there's something innate and not just something they pick up right and then The other one that I thought was super fascinating is that they understand our eyes being closed. So they know, they know when we like can't see what they're doing so that if you had a dog who likes to steal food, maybe that like, if you closed your eyes, they would, they would know that, that sort Mm -hmm. of like your back is turned. And they know where your eyes are looking. Mm -hmm. They know what you're looking at. Yep. And that is a hint for all people trying to do dog agility. And I I think, so all of those tidbits come from, I want to say it's called Inside of a Dog, Brian Hare. 
He's a researcher from Yale. He has the dog. Yeah, and I think that he did not write inside of a dog. Um, but Alexandra. Alexa- yes. What is the one that he wrote? Alexandra. I've read them both. Basically, these are two people to look up and there will be links <laughs> for, exactly, for everybody. Right? <laughs> so that we can remember. <laughs> I, I loved his book. He talks about like why a dog can wrap themselves around a tree but can't unwrap themselves and like different... He's done a lot of really amazing um, research with dogs. So if you are curious about this sort of thing, mm-hmm. yes, we will have a link to the book in the in the show notes. I think we better wrap it up because we've been talking for a long time and taking a lot of Sarah's time. And I think the bottom line is that there are some basic foundational things to look at in your dog's life, if uh, particularly if you're having any kind of behavioral issue to see if there is a basic need that you can meet. And I think our second big point is they are complex beings. So yeah. keep that mm-hmm. in mind as you're, as you're thinking about your dogs. Yeah. And try to make sure that what you're deeming a behavioral issue is not actually a welfare deficit. Yes. There you go. That's the main point right there. <laughs> Wraps it up nicely. Perfect, Sarah. It's like you do this all the time. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah, for being here. Thanks, you both. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So that's all for today's episode. Don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast so you can join us for our next episode. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or by visiting our website at www.caninehijinks.com. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to go out and have some fun with your dogs. Talk to you next time. <laughs>